so really I got into wine because I was working with um, several guys, uh, so other, other teachers who were really, really you know, big wine geeks now when I think about it. And they brought me to several tastings in Paris where I got to meet different winemakers. And talking with winemakers got me really, really hooked on wine much more than just drinking it. fun and spirited look at the world of wine and drinking. I'm your host, Zach Jabal, and joining me on the show today is Brendan Stater-West, an American winemaker working in Samara, France. We'll talk about Chenin Blanc, Cabernet Franc, and the expat lifestyle in just a moment, but first, a thought. The Loire Valley is a magical place for making wine. Tasting in Samara on my recent visit showed me exactly why. The incredible diversity of soil types, exposures, and viticultural techniques results in a wide range of wines made from Chenin Blanc and Cabernet Franc, but almost all were excellent. The Loire has often been relegated to something like obscurity in the face of more prominent French winemaking regions, and that's especially the case for places like Samur that, for whatever reason, just don't have the fame of nearby villages like Vouvray. Yet towns like Samur are in many ways home to some of the most exciting wine in the Loire, in part because there's simply more room to explore and experiment. That's why Brendan can make his Chenin Blanc with a notable oak influence, while, say, Emmanuel Augereau plants a new vineyard whenever he finds a particularly intriguing soil composition. If you enjoy dynamic and challenging wines, Anjou Semeur and the other less heralded parts of this oft-unheralded region certainly deserve your consideration. Joining me on Discord today is Brendan Stater-West. He's the right arm for Romain Guiberto in the Loire Valley, as well as a winemaker for his own winery right there. Brendan, thanks so much for uh, joining me. Thanks, Zach. It's really a pleasure to be with you. Absolutely. So uh, you're an American from the West Coast. How in the world did you Thanks, end up Mark. in Semeur making wine? Well, uh, the long story that can be made short is I was working in uh, Paris actually um, back with uh, an, another American uh, Joshua Adler who's running his own business now um, Paris Wine Company and we were working together in uh, the wine store of uh, Spring which was uh, connected to the restaurant Spring of Daniel Rose um, and so I worked with him and um, after working in retail for uh, a period of time I wanted to get out and kind of get back to more of a um, country living, um, more of a calm lifestyle than city living in, in Paris. And I wanted to get my hands dirty and, and really learn everything about wine and, and really um, understand how to grow grapes and how to make it. And um, and I was always uh, really, I, I've just been always a huge fan of Chenin Blanc. And um, I... I was introduced to Roman's wines actually by working at Spring, and uh, we had a small allocation of his wines every year, and that was my entryway actually into starting to work for him. Um, uh, so I called him in 2012 and harassed him for a good month or so um, to take me as a, as an apprentice, and he gave it a lot of thought. I called other people in the area; nobody was interested in that, and. Finally, Roman said, hey, if you're harassing me, you're calling me this much, you must be really interested in, in, uh, in uh, really motivated. So come in, let's, uh, I'll take you under my wing. And that's kind of where it got going from there. Excellent. And you, did, you, didn't, you didn't initially move to France with the idea that you'd be working in and around wine, right? That kind of no. came out from being there. 
No, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was a, originally a teacher, um, an English teacher, working in Paris, and that was my um, that was my legal entryway into the into to living into the in in France. But I had no idea. I don't come from a winemaking family. I don't come from. My parents enjoy uh, wine. They drink it regularly, um, and so that was already a part of my family's culture, but nothing more than that. And um, so really, I got into wine because I was working with um, several guys, uh, so other, other teachers who were really, really you know, big wine geeks now when I think about it. And they brought me to several tastings in Paris where I got to meet different winemakers. And talking with winemakers got me really, really hooked on wine much more than just drinking it. It was I was starting to get the, in French, we would call it the virus, uh, the the wine virus, the wine bug of saying, you know, it's, it's, it's more than just something in, in the glass. It's, it goes beyond that. There's something metaphysical about it. And so that's how I got really hooked and really decided that I want to get out of teaching and start, um, learning wine itself. Very cool. And so you end up in, uh, the Samar area, you're working, uh, for, uh, for a man. How, how, like, what was the learning curve like for you? As you said, you hadn't really had experience working, certainly making and, and uh, making wine, growing grapes, anything like that, and, and working in a retail shop is a little different. Like, what, was, what were the hardest things for you to figure out at the, at the beginning? Wow. Uh, from where to start? It's such a complex um, thing to be a winemaker. So I, I don't know. I think it was definitely the vineyard side for me. Um, uh, things made much more sense when I was, you know, in the winery and in, in, in the process of the, the transformation, but it, it was definitely the vineyard work and the intensity and the precision and um, the rigor that really uh, I had to adapt to. And that was the hardest for me to get used to um, in the vineyard. And that was, does that answer your question? Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was that, it was also, you know, um, I got, they put me quickly on a tractor so I could start learning to do all the mechanical work and everything. And that was new for me because I didn't ever had any kind of manual experience like that. And so the learning curve was, yeah, <laughs> it was a lot for me to, 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 to learn. And, um, you know, everything still takes time and I'm still learning, um, both in the vineyards and both in the winery. So, so let's talk a little bit about the, about the, vineyard sites that you guys work with and, and what makes mm -hmm. them special. So I think, you know, most people, myself included, when you first start learning about, especially Shannon in, in the Loire, you learn about uh, Vouvray, you maybe learn about Sauvignere, which, uh, you know, Mont Louis de Loire, mm -hmm. you know, which are not that far away, but are somewhat different, both in terms of their oh, yeah. uh, proximity to water and just the, the geology and all that. So so what sets uh, the Samur region, maybe generally, and, and maybe Brazé in particular, apart? Yeah, that's a good question. So, uh, Brezé has a really, really long and rich history um, with Chenin Blanc, actually. Um, um, I would say that it, it stands apart in the sense, in the Somir area, that it's um, one of the few hillsides um, where historically white grapes have been planted. And um, there's a historic, we have you know, historical documents that prove that even monks were farming um, Chenin, you know, back even in the 16th century. And, you know, those documents do show that um, there were even transactions between these monks that were making, um, uh, that were making wine from uh, Brezé itself. And then those wines were being taken to Mont Saint-Michel um, and even being taken to the Vatican. So we do have documents showing that importance. So historically, it's, it's a site that's important um, in that regard, but from a geological point of view, it's, um, one of the only hillsides in the Somer area really where there's just 
there's only limestone. Um, you have other hillsides, uh, important hillsides in Somir and other sites that are, there is limestone, but it, you can find it much, much deeper, um, um, under the soil than, than what it is in Brizzy. Um, in Brizzy, it's, uh, you know, there's different depths, there's different expositions. It's, um, not just like one slope that's facing, for example, the east. It's, you have expositions facing the north, south, east, west, um, on different types of soil, there's sandy loam, there's sandy soils, there's clay, there's really heavy clay, and which makes different sites on Breze. Um, for us, it's our little burgundy because it, there's different these micro microclimates that exist. So, um, yeah, I think that's that's what generally speaking what what defines Breze, um, and that's rare to find that on such a that amount of geological expressions and microclimates in one small area and one small hillside um, such as Brazil. So does that then as a winemaker strongly kind of encourage you to do lots of individual uh, picks and ferments and, and really try yes. to keep those expressions separate? Yes, yes. I mean, that's what's that's what makes growing on Brazil really, really interesting. Really hard too because um, you know, we're working with, and when it comes to picking, sometimes we have 10 days, uh, difference, um, from when we start picking our, 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 uh, from when beginning and to the last different parcels that we, we end up uh, harvesting. So to have that, those different ripenesses be so spread apart, it's not always easy for us. It's good because not everything's ripe at the same time, but it's not always easy. Um, considering how fast weather can change, you know, late September, or early October. Mm-hmm. And, and so is the, is it that you have, or I guess when it comes to making picking decisions and, and ripeness, does it seem to be that the, uh, exposition of the slope is more, more determines kind of the ripening, uh, rate or is it the, the soil composition or is it kind of hard to say, well, it's this or that? Yeah. Well, generally speaking, it is the exposition, um, we're always picking the first vineyard that we're picking is the Clodé Carm, um, which is a monopole on the south southwest uh, slope um, of Brézé, and that's the first vineyard that we pick in in in, um, in Brézé because it's um, really it's getting the most amount of uh, light and and heat, and compared to another vineyard that's you know on the north northeast side of Brézé that's called Onborgen, where uh, uh, you know Clorejar they have some of their vineyards, uh, Arnaud Lambert, he has some of his, um, obviously we have some and those, uh, that's a site that's much, much cooler. And that's the last one that we pick. Um, and so it's, you know, on, on that slope also the, on that, in that vineyard of Omborgen, uh, there's much deeper, heavier clay and that it's cool. So the, there's always, we always getting just really, really intense acidity coming from that, that vineyard. And so, when it comes to picking, and we're really focused much more on finding you know the right balance, um, keeping acidity, um, finding the right balance between um, you know the ripeness and and and, and really having uh, from one vineyard to another uh, always acidity where it's this kind of fine line between. Um, something that can be kind of like lemon juice that we're looking for and something that can be, um, kind of like green apple or, um, uh, you know, kind of a slightly underripe pear. And to find those, that 
that ripeness that kind of falls in between where we're picking just a tiny bit underripe is not always easy. Um, so I, I'm, I'm kind of bla- I'm kind of going on. I don't know if I should or not. But. <laughs> no, that's that's good. Uh, no, I'm I'm wondering. You know, when you kind of talk about making those picking decisions at this point, is that a is that a matter of um, literally tasting the grapes? Is it a matter of mm-hmm. measuring uh, sort of the various um, chemical properties of the grapes? How how do you make that picking decision? Tasting. I mean, that's the only way. I mean, we go back to I can say you know we do look at um, we do some measurements. We obviously look at potential alcohol content. We look at the total acidity, the pH, and you know, there are those factors that do go into a decision, but what's ultimately most important is, is tasting, um, going out in the vineyards and spending time every day seeing how they, how to, uh, every vineyard evolves um, and really making a decision based on that. And so then, you know, kind of after the pick and, and all that, what, what, is the, what is the sort of general winemaking approach and, and is it pretty consistent at least in terms of maybe not uh, aging, but at least in terms of ferments and things like that? Do you kind of take the same approach with all your different plots or, or do different things happen with, uh, with different plots? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. So generally speaking, we want our fermentations uh, – well, let me back up actually um, – in terms of how the the grapes are pressed, it's all we have. We work with a couple different programs according on the vintage. If we're you know having to squeeze a little more and and to get some more juice out or not, and lay back on it, and so that that depends. But we're not you know we're not super geeky on trying to get you know find out all these different really precise programs. And I know there there are people that are that other winemakers, um, Jean-Marc Rulo. I know that he's really really into finding those little nitty-gritty details and really getting into them because he believes it's really important for us we've tried it in the previous vintages and it's taking us more time than actually giving us results that we're looking for so with the press uh, it, it comes um, um we're working we don't destem any of our whites everything goes in whole bunches and um uh, we'll do a, I don't know how you call it in English I need to look review my English vocabulary but uh, we call it in French a debolbage so we're getting r- racking and we're getting rid of all the, you know, the nasty stuff that is uh, stayed on the grapes, um, all the sulfur and everything that falls to the bottom of the tank, all the dirt. And we rack that about uh, between 24 and 36 hours after um, pressing the juice. Um, and then from that point on, we will heat up the juice and we want the, um, we really uh, want our wines to start fermenting as soon as possible. Everything's in indigenous yeast. We want the fermentations to get going as fast as they can and to finish as quickly as they can. And so we will, yeah, we're looking for fermentations to be up and running and then finished within a window of three weeks um, for for our whites. And for our reds, it's a little shorter, and that's just often how the yeast on our reds um, tend to function. But um, uh, at least for our whites, all the, the everything's started, the fermentation started in tank stainless steel tank and then um, according on the different bottlings um, they will go into different vessels um, for the rest of the fermentation so brise and clodé carm um, all the new oak that's used uh, for those different bottlings um, at a certain point about a third in into the ferment third of the way into the fermentation we will um, transfer the wine into the into the barrels so that the fermentation can take place so that there will, the, the, the new oak will be much more integrated into the wine from the beginning. Um, and 
Same thing for Claude Guichot in the 600 liter uh, Demi Marie. Um, and, and then the, you know, the bottlings, Les Moulins and Domaine finish their fermentation in a stainless steel tank. So, mm -hmm. and then, and so then, you know, kind of with these different expressions of, of Shannon in particular, what, I guess what I'd say is like, how, how do you view, um, the, the sort of process of, of taking the wine from, from grape to, to, you know, ferment to barrel aging, if, if applicable to bottle aging, mm. It's my sense that you that you know at, at doing Guibert, there's a there's just a lot of um, I mean like in all winemaking there's a lot of attention to detail but there's also a lot of very specific choices that are made in mm -hmm. in how that works and so I guess what I'm sort of asking is like you know when it gets to that sort of uh, oak usage or and or you know kind of amount of time in oak and amount of time in, in bottle before release what is is that is it a is it more philosophy or, or sort of stylistic uh, considerations that drive that, or, or, or how, how are those how are those sort of decisions reached? That's a good question. I think those uh, those are stylist. I would say, generally speaking, it's stylistic details that we're going after, and those are details that were are constantly evolving and that we're um, continuing to refine as well because of past experiences and, and the way that wines have uh, kind of evolved also in the past and how we like or do not like the way that they evolve. And so we just notice, I mean, for, I, I mean, to give you an example, Breze, for example, is a wine there. It's, it's grapes that are coming from 60 to 80 year old vines. And on certain sites that are, as I was explaining, that are cold, there's a lot of acidity. There's a, it's just like a, it's a, it's a young stallion that needs to be, that needs to be trained and calmed down. And, and for us, uh, new oak is the way that we can achieve that. And so, um, having the fermentations take place in barrel and then, you know, 20, another 24 months in the barrel is, the, is really the only way to kind of, um, yeah, get that stallion ready so that at least it's no longer just, um, untamed and, 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 and wild that there's still that wildness to it but that there's something that's much more approachable um and so i would say that uh for us working with new oak we've noticed that it really tends to pull out much more uh further and give much more length to uh, to to our wines um and that's for brezze and claudia carm i i would say that for claudia Gisha we've evolved also and we're, we're still looking for um you know what's that right type of edivage for this, uh, for the, for Claude Guichot, but I think we're getting closer to it. And it's just a lot of past, you know, tasting the wines while they're aging, past vintages, how they've kind of reacted to different types of oak. Um, but stylistically, yeah, we like this, you know, how, um, the, the marriage that, you know, Shinon can have with certain kinds of oak. And, um, we believe that it really enhances, um, obviously the aromatic aromatic profile to the wine as well as texturally how it uh, pulls out the wine much further and it seems like you know that that there's a there's a challenge i guess in summer and maybe in uh, with the with Brise in particular where you know you have a really wide range of stylistic approaches to making wine there obviously you have a lot of wine that uh, i think uh, is maybe sold to the cooperative and so yeah. there's there's a you know there's sort of a, a, a maybe a disconnect is maybe too strong of a word but there's a real discrepancy between the way that some people are making wine uh, from you know 
almost next door to the way you guys are making wine. Is it challenging to kind of explain your approach either uh, maybe to locals? Do they get it or and or, you know, as that wine enters the global market where obviously it's got mm-hmm. a reputation? I mean, you know, I'm familiar with it here in Seattle, so it's not <laughs> obscure at all in that sense. But like, how does it is it hard to kind of explain to people what you're doing as opposed to maybe what's more familiar there? Locally, yes, it's very hard because there's a, still a culture of just large, you know, mass-produced industrial bulk wine. That's um, you know, which the history, the history of the region um, hasn't necessarily proved it to be a region that's necessarily striving for quality, and much more in terms of quantity. Like many wine-making, wine-producing regions in France, until um, recently, and and I think there's because of this, the power that the local cooperative has um, here, I think it's hard to for many people to get out of the mentality of you know just making the vines piss and really just bulk wine and 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 to really allow them to understand that there's people you are sitting on gold here. The, the terroirs that are in this area are incredible, and and to get people out of the the, the thought of you know wines here are mediocre and are just good to drink at every you know at the table every day and that. Yeah, it's, it's not easy, and, and I think people's eyes definitely locally, people kind of light up when we start telling them, you know, what the, the price of the wines um, it cost, and that's, I'm speaking, that's for the, speaking locally. Once, obviously, we have clients that come from, you know, that are sommeliers and, and retail and everything, people understand, so it's really just a question, of, I think, of the culture um, in which people come from that, um, that really plays a difference. Is it interesting too? It feels like you know uh, you were mentioning kind of when we were talking about this. What makes Brezé in particular uh, unique? That um, is it still is the winemaking culture in the broader Samur area still largely dominated by red wine? Obviously, you guys make red wine as well, yes. but I feel like the whites are sort of the uh, at least to my understanding, and I could be completely wrong, are in a lot of ways the hallmark of, and and the really um, you know kind of the the I don't know the the favorites uh, the favorite child if I if that sure. Is, Correct. Is that is that a, a somewhat unique thing for the area as well? Yeah, I mean it's rare to find uh, other wineries like uh, Romans that are uh, you know making actually a little bit more white wine than reds. That's really rare. Most uh, most you know producers are doing between 70 percent reds, thirty percent whites, um, something around that range, or even you know eighty ninety percent reds and the rest whites. So it's really rare to find that. Um, and it's, you know, because there aren't that many, uh, you know, producers that are pretty much exclusively growing all their grapes in Breze, um, like Roman does. So, yeah, I mean, but generally speaking, so the history of, of Somir, unfortunately, has changed um, from being a history of really, really rich in uh, people growing Chenin Blanc to more people growing Cabernet Franc. Because of the creation of the appellation of uh, Sommier Champigny back in the mid 1950s, and that was it was an appellation that was created, um, and back that period people were really really into um, drinking rosé. Red wine wasn't even something that people were interested in, and they were drinking rosé, and that's what was popular and being sold in bistros and being taken to Paris in bulk, and and so everybody planted you know uprooted their chenons and they planted Cabernet Franc and and preferred that even though, you know, when we look at the different terroirs in Somir, there are, I would say, 60 to 70% of those terroirs that should be 
predominantly planted in, in Chino and not Cabernet Franc. And that's kind of the, the other way around. It's about, yeah, 30% in, in Chino and 70% in Cabernet Franc now. And so when you do look at making at making the reds, uh, working with Cabernet Franc, what is it What is it in your mind that makes for um, a particularly good uh, site or terroir for Cabernet Franc in the area? <laughs> well, uh, Cabernet Franc needs light. It needs warmth. So I would say a, a site that is allowing your grapes to ripen because um, I have memories, you know, back in 2012 and 13, we were harvesting our Cabernet Francs what was it second and third week of October so late harvest and um and at that point you're not getting the days are much shorter and you're not getting you know the amount of light and the amount of warmth that allow your grapes to ripen um, in the way that you want them so I would say yeah to to, to to get ripe ultimate ripeness and phenolic ripeness in for Cabernet Franc here in the area we you need a site that's warmer so um with a certain exposition you know south west uh, facing and if possible on sandy, sandy clay soils, um, sand, you know, more of the sandy soils do help, help the ripening to go a little faster. Do you find that those sites are, is the, is the sort of the resulting wine, uh, still kind of that, I mean, my, my experience with a lot of the, the reds from Samur and, and not necessarily the, always the the greatest ones is, you know, you kind of, even when they're, you know, beautifully, when they're beautifully ripe, uh, for the most part, they still have, you know, just loads of acidity. Is that kind of a, a, a hard to avoid? Yes. And that's what the, that's, and it, yeah, I laugh just because it's something that Roman and I were obsessed with. And it's something that I think will always exist in stylistically in, in his wines and in the wines that I want to make is, because it's the back for us, the backbone of the wine, and that's what holds on in, in, in you know, the, the, the years that the wine's aged and, and enjoyed. In. And so, yeah, I mean, but there's always just this, many people can't, you know, it's hard to approach, I think, if you don't understand it and if you're not, you're not uh, haven't already tasted other wines um, similar to it. And, um, and so at, at the same time, it's, I want to get back to the, the whole use of oak as well, because that acidity uh, is so intense that it needs time and it needs a vessel also for that acidity to be kind of rounded off. And for us, oak is, is the appropriate way of doing so. When you're do, when you're looking to do that with, with red wines as well, are you, how, how are you approaching it? What's the, what's the sort of oak regimen for, for the reds, uh, with, with the Giberto wines? Yeah, good question. Um, so it depends on the bottling, but, um, so for example, our Domaine Rouge, um, it's, uh, aged in now in, um, uh, how do you say it in English? Like, uh, tronconique, kind of like the Burgundian type wooden, uh, uh, tanks, open, open tanks. And, and then for, uh, the other bottling, Limotel, that's more neutral, so, it's already had four or five vintages, um, barrels that have already had four or five vintages. And, um, and then these arboises is predominantly new oak. So between anywhere between 50 and 75% new oak, depending on the vintage. Um, and when it comes to, uh, we work with a, a certain Cooper who, um, is giving us really an oak that's been dried for between 48 and 60 months. And that helps give a certain grain to, 
to the wine and to the tannin, the tannin is much, much softer um, when the oak has, has been dried much longer. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's important for us too, to find, you know, coopers that are working with right the certain kind of toasts that, um, you know, respect the wine, but, and also give it kind of lift it up, but also keep that texture really, really, really soft. So when you, when we get to the point of actually drinking these wines, like where, where do you, uh, maybe starting with some of the Shannons and then we can talk about the Cabernet Franc too. Mm-hmm. How do you see them playing into someone's dining experience? What are some things that you like to, I mean, probably you drink these with just about everything cause they're your wines, mm-hmm. but <laughs> for those of us who can't necessarily open a bottle every night, what are, what sure. are some, what are some, uh, some dishes or just, you know, kind mm-hmm. of general, uh, uh, pairing kind of, uh, ideas, uh, for some of the wines. Yeah. So I'll kind of work you through kind of the line of the wines. If you're drinking, you know, Domaine, um, Le Moulin, Claude Guichot, those are three bottlings I would say that go really, really well um, with seafood, um, oysters, scallops. Um, those are what I'm drinking right now. I mean, those are the kinds of wines that I'm drinking right now um, in the season um, with seafood. And, you know, once you get into like Brezé and Claude Carme, it's much better – you know, Brezzi goes amazingly well with lobster, and that's kind of what Roman and I joke about. It. It's our favorite thing that uh, we love to splurge on when we go to a restaurant together is, you know, bringing a bottle of Brezzi and eating it with lobster. So that goes really well. Uh, and Carm is always, uh, it gets, it's a much bigger, richer expression of Chanel for us. And that's always a, a bond that goes really, really good on any kind of dish that has, is really, you know, has a lot of cream any kind of, you know, veal, especially we really like it with, depends on kind of what vintage you're drinking as well. Um, but and yes, if you get into some of the older vintages, um, you can start, you can start pairing it with some, um, either truffle, uh, or, mu- uh, mushrooms, mm-hmm. shiitake mushrooms go really, really well with kind of older vintages, uh, of, um, of his wine. So I don't know if I'm answering your question, you but, um, yeah, I mean, that's kind of generally, there's a whole, window of possibilities but once you get into the you know Brezze and Claudia come where there's much more oak it's better to really keep it to dishes um and not so much kind of other simple seafood and stuff like that um so yeah something with, yeah. With definitely with some more richness to kind of pair with the weight of the wine um yeah. and and do you do you have a sense obviously you know the wines are designed to be enjoyable probably from from release on but but do you have like a a personal preference of the drinking window or, or how do you see the wine evolving? I mean, you mm-hmm. mentioned the, uh, the clitocarm being more, uh, you know, maybe showing almost some sort of earthy notes as it develops. What, what's the, what's that, uh, progression like? It depends on, once again, I come back to the question of the vintage, but, um, I would say that, um, generally speaking, yeah, I mean, Domaine, Les Moulins, um, are bottlings that are, the whole goal of the, of when we make these wines is that, that they're open and they're ready to just be popped open and, and, and enjoyed, you know, from now on to the next, you know, five, six, seven years. And Claude Guichot is kind of more of a medium range, you know, I would say it's good to wait, you know, five to 10 years. And then Brezé, if, if you can, if you're patient, um, you know, really hold on to it because it really, really starts showing well, you know, past eight from eight to 10 years, 15 years on. It's just uh, just it's incredibly amazing how um, complex the aromas become. And, and it just the acidity is still there. And but however, the wines totally 
transformed it is metaphysical for me at that point <laughs> well that's the whole point right that's why you got into it <laughs> yeah. yeah excellent so I, I just have one last question for you it's a little uh, sort of maybe a little more fanciful than the rest so obviously uh had the opportunity to uh to work with uh some really cool uh vineyard sites great material etc and and learn mm-hmm. from some very talented people if you though had the opportunity to go make wine i guess anywhere else in france or, or the world is there anything mm-hmm. either varietally or or site-wise that you're like man i love what i'm doing but i would kind of love to get a crack at that too uh, well uh yeah i mean it's i would be really really um oh that's a good question because i love shina i have to love riesling <laughs> so um, I would, you know, be really interested in if I was to, if I had more time, uh, I would want to spend a little more time in Alsace, um, in Germany, in parts of Austria, learning more about Riesling because I feel that Schöne and Riesling have much, really, really close, um, you know, in terms of their aromatic profiles, in terms of the acidity and just the weight that we can get in certain the wines and stuff. And so that's that's one varietal. At the same time, home is calling me. I feel it in my heart. I want to go back to Oregon at a point, and um, I would be. Of course, any American that's living in France would say, I'd love to go make wine in Burgundy and learn how to grow <laughs> Pinot Noir. And in terms of the red red varietals, I feel like I, I'm starting to get starting to get a good notion of how to grow Chenin and how to make it. Um, in terms of red varietals, I would love to learn how to make Pinot Noir. And it's just something that Roman and I, we love to drink uh, all the time. And I can never have enough of it, to be honest. Well, I mean, there's at least, uh, there's at least some Pinot Noir not super far from you guys. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, and even you have, you have you have great you have great uh, pinots from uh, Sancerre even and that's mm-hmm. not that's super far. Well, Brennan, thank you so much for your time. Uh, it was a real yeah. pleasure chatting with you and getting to taste with you uh, last month in uh, in France and uh, best of luck and if you do make it back out to the West Coast, uh, I look forward to trying your wines here too. Great. I'd love to come see you, Zach. Thanks thanks again. Thanks so much to Brendan Stater West. You can find his wines in shops and restaurants all across the United States and you can find me everywhere on Twitter and Instagram at ZJabal. Thanks so much for listening to Disgorged, and cheers.